0: Today for our scripture reading and our texts we'll be looking in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12 and we'll also be looking in the prophet Jonah chapters 1 and 2. So we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 12 verses 38 through 41. And then we'll proceed to our Jonah readings. Hear this, the word of God. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 12, verses 38 through 41. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. I'm reading from Jonah chapter 1, verse 15. I'm just going to read 15 and 17 from chapter 1. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. Verse 17, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Moving to chapter 2, verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, and he said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you might reveal to us beautiful things from your word this day. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see Christ, that we might see his kingdom, that we might see who Jesus is, And what benefits he gives to us. And that we might be participants in that great story. And that we might be reflectors of your glory. That others might see that story. And by your spirit might join the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well in our text today. In Matthew. While talking with the Pharisees. While talking with the Pharisees. He points out who he is. Christ points out who he is. He's the one who's greater than the temple, in verse 6 of our text. He's greater than Jonah, verse 41. And he's greater than Solomon, verse 42. Jesus describes himself as the true prophet and the true king. Yes, he in whom the deity dwells in bodily form. And he also identifies himself as the true in the final temple. But the Pharisees will have none of that. The Pharisees think that Jesus performs miracles by the power of Satan. They do not doubt that Jesus performs miracles. Rather, they attribute the power source of his miraculous acts and deeds to Beelzebul, right? To the prince of demons. They doubt that Jesus comes from God because they have decided for themselves what the kingdom should look like. What the Messiah should act like. And Jesus does not measure up to their conception of Messiah. They expected the Messiah to be like them. They expected him to think like them, to judge like them, to live like them. In short, they envisioned a Messiah who shared the same expectations as them, but had the power to secure what they hoped for. And isn't that how we all want God to be? We want God to give us what we want on our terms. So before we get too judgy towards these Pharisees, realize there's a little Pharisee in each of our hearts. But the Pharisees hate Jesus because of this. Because Jesus was not the type of Messiah they expected, verse 14 tells us they sought to kill him. To add fuel to the fire in verses 33 through 35 of our text, Christ tells the Pharisees that they're bad, They're evil. They're a bunch of snakes. Now, this is a tense situation. Jesus is exercising his prophetic role in exposing the Pharisees' sin. Now, could you imagine if you were in an argument and someone is pointing out all of your faults? Could you imagine this being your answer? Someone calls you bad fruit, evil, a bunch of snakes. Wouldn't you want to respond with a similar insult? BUT LET'S SEE WHAT THE PHARISEES RESPOND WITH IN VERSE 38. THE PHARISEES RESPONSE IS, TEACHER, WE WANT TO SEE A MIRACULOUS SIGN FROM YOU, RIGHT? WOW. NOW, THE PHARISEES HERE DO NOT HONESTLY RESPECT JESUS AS OF COURSE CALLING HIM A RABBI OR A TEACHER WOULD SUGGEST, RIGHT? Teachers a title of respect they don't respect him earlier we see in the passage that they want to kill him they're trying to frame him neither do they want to see yet another miraculous sign could you imagine if someone in las vegas was rather commonly regularly going about multiplying kids lunch pails to feed thousands of people right sam boyd stadium filled with kids all eating thanks to one guy's lunchbox and jesus did that do you think nobody heard about this all these people that jesus comes alongside and says hey Don't talk about that. But then they go out and they talk about it. Do you think no one's heard of this? The Pharisees are not interested to see if Jesus can do a miraculous deed. They've heard, perhaps even seen, plenty themselves. The issue here is they are not interested in healing the sick, raising the dead. Okay? They're not interested in the blind or deaf. Because at the end of the day, oftentimes, the moral calculus works out in such a way that bad things are happening to you because you deserve it, right? If that's the moral calculus, well, this person's sick, this person's dead, this person can't hear, this person has, you know, a bunk arm. Uh, Well, you know, hey, that's probably because they deserve it right? And we see this in in John 9, right? In John 9, we have that episode where um, there's a man born blind, right? And so the Jewish leaders come to Jesus and they ask him, Rabbi, hey, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And, you know, uh, (laughs) Jesus doesn't indulge them. He's like, this is for the glory of God being revealed, Right? Don't you get the idea, the inequity of the curse, that it's not, a, it, it, it's not a one-to-one correlation between your bad deeds and bad things happen to you? It's just a wacky world where the common curse, common grace world, God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. God lets the righteous suffer, oftentimes more than the unrighteous perhaps. That world, it's like they didn't get a note on that one. They didn't get the message. So the Pharisees are exercising this same popular wisdom. They don't care about the weak and the downtrodden. Those people are sin-laden failures. They want this world and the glory of this world. They want to be in control of the world. They want Israel to rule over Rome, but as it is, Rome rules over Israel. So their desire to see a miracle is simply a way to treat Jesus as a clown or a magician, or at the very least to waste his time. However, For the weak, for the downtrodden, for the bruised reeds, the Lord Jesus performs many miraculous signs that they might see their greater need and their salvation in Jesus. But to these Pharisees who represent Israel, Jesus responds with the words of verse 39, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus calls them a wicked and adulterous generation because they're unfaithful Israelites. The people of Israel were in covenant relation with God in which God was the husband figure and Israel was the wife. Jesus is saying that the people of Israel, particularly the Pharisees, were unfaithful. They didn't love God. They really loved other gods or things. These are the people who killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to her. These are the people that Jesus bemoaned in Matthew 23 saying, How I, like a mother hen, wanted to gather you as chicks under my wing, but you would have none of it. The fact of the matter is, Jesus could have performed a million miracles before these unfaithful people, and they would never have come to faith in him. Jesus promises the only sign that they would receive is the sign of the prophet Jonah. But what is this sign? What is this sign of the prophet Jonah? Our Lord is the first and only person in the Bible to speak of a sign of Jonah. But what is it about Jonah that Christ is referring to? And you know, this is an issue of much debate amongst interpreters. We'll look at a few options. Um, the first option is that perhaps the sign of Jonah is the sign of coming judgment. Both Jonah and Jesus, they both announce coming judgment on their audiences, right? Jonah gets on the scene finally and he says 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jesus' first words when he gets on the scene is repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, right? Um, Maybe that's the sign of Jonah. Is the sign of Jonah the preaching of Israel's savior to Gentile nations? Certainly Jonah does go and he preaches to non-Israelites and certain Jesus commissions his apostles to go out and start the Gentile work and we're all here as a result of that, perhaps that's the sign of Jonah. Or is the sign of Jonah the verification of the message by the divine vindication of the messenger? That is, is the sign of Jonah showing the message to be true by the messenger's miraculous salvation from judgment? We're going for option C. And you have probably guessed because it wasn't as well polished. Um, complicated one's always the right answer. C's always the right answer too, I'm told. Okay, um, B. Being our Lord is uh, the first to mention the sign of Jonah. We should be concerned with what he actually says about the sign of Jonah. So, you know, if we look at, you know, uh, parallel passages in the Bible, Luke chapter 11, Jesus comments on this sign of Jonah. He says... For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. Okay, it just says he's going to be a sign. It's not terribly helping us a bunch. Matthew 12:40. Jesus states, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, this is much more explicit. It's making a parallel between, you know, Jonah's underwater for three days experience and Jesus' experience in the grave, right? There's a parallel between Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and the sea experience of Jonah. Now, in order to more fully understand the sign of Jonah, we must now turn our attention to the book of Jonah. Now, we all remember the account of Jonah. It is that account that even in our increasingly biblically illiterate culture, people know about right they're like that is the story where a man was swallowed by a big whale right Um, that is the story where how does that work what kind of animal consumes a man and enables him to stay alive in the whale And so people wonder, it must be a whale because whales are mammals and mammals breathe oxygen and somehow this whale must have swallowed him into his lungs so that he could breathe and be alive there and everything's cool. Now, I have not studied much anatomy outside of automobiles. (laughs) But I don't think that when large carnivorous sea creatures swallow you, that you go into their lungs if they had them. My imagination would lead me to think that you'd probably go into a stomach with gastric juices and it would get nasty really quick. Um, those are the kinds of questions that people focus on on uh, the account of Jonah. And personally, I think they're really misguided, but it's, it's fascinating. Uh, you know, the Hebrew is a dog gadol, which just means a big fish. Right? So there's no real justification for the, the whale approach. Um, I think what happens is people watch Pinocchio, and they read Pinocchio back into Jonah, and it works, right? Um, well, almost all the common discussion of the book of Jonah centers on Jonah's experience with the waters and the fish. And certainly it is one of the most memorable. Yet this experience of Jonah is not merely history, and it's certainly not uh, a fable, Okay? IT IS A PROPHETIC FORESHADOWING OF JESUS CHRIST'S SACRIFICIAL DEATH, BURIAL, AND RESURRECTION THREE DAYS LATER, OKAY? IT'S A PROPHETICAL FORESHADOWING OF JESUS' SACRIFICIAL DEATH, BURIAL, AND RESURRECTION. BUT IF WE'RE GOING TO UNDERSTAND THIS BOOK OF JONAH AS PROPHECY, WE NEED TO TWEAK OUR GENERAL UNDERSTANDING. OFTENTIMES WE THINK OF A PROPHET. We're thinking of prophets as those who come and they expose the people of God for their sin and they take care of their prophetic task by the spoken word. And indeed, that's normally the case. But here in Jonah, I submit to you that his prophetic task is fulfilled perhaps much like uh, drawn blank, a guy who's moving on. Guy who's promised that God tells him he needs to go marry a harlot? Help. Hosea. Much like Hosea, right? Hosea, it's not so much Hosea's speaking, it's his experience. Hosea, go marry her. You're going to show us exactly what Israel's like, right? Well, in the case of Jonah, um, it is very similar. Your experience is going to speak to the issue at hand. So we have, therefore, in Jonah, a dramatic prophecy. The very fact that Jews classified Jonah as prophecy in their Bible testifies to the truth that Jonah's experience was prophetic of Jesus Christ. So if Jonah does not find its prophetic fulfillment in Jesus Christ, it serves no prophetic purpose, okay? At least once we get in the New Testament and see Jesus make this sign of Jonah speech. Think about it. Prophetic books typically warn of God's coming judgment, both temporally and eternally. The prophet comes as God's lawyer, pronouncing the coming curses of the covenant. But on a shallow reading of this text, the book of Jonah has no prophetic significance for the Israelites. The only word of prophecy found there isn't aimed at the Israelites at all. It's aimed at Nineveh. Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. As the book of prophecy addressed to Israel, however, of what prophetic use is the book of Jonah? Is it only a moral lesson for how Jews should treat Palestinians in the West Bank? Now, there's certainly some valid applications that look faithful Israelites. Your mission, your calling is united to Abraham and your children of Abraham. And there's that, you know, it's gonna bust the seams, as it were, of your Jewish expectations and keep that in mind. That's certainly a fair uh, application but that's not what the entire book's about. No, as a brother points out, if we take the word prophecy seriously, we're obliged to see that there is only one reason why Israel accepted this book as prophecy, and that is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The true message of Jonah can only be understood in the light of Christ. But just how in detail does Jonah prophesy of Christ? Jonah 1.15 tells us that they, that is the sailors, Picked up Jonah, threw him in the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Now, I want you to think for a moment about the imagery of the sea as we see it in the Bible, okay? In the Old Testament, when we see water, water is often the place where chaos reigns and judgment is often executed. Opening chapters of Genesis, right? We're told that the earth was formless and void and there's darkness over the surface of the deep. And Yahweh needs to come in and make distinctions, make order go from less order to increasing order. In Genesis seven, we see that God destroys the entire world by water in the flood. Water's not a good thing oftentimes in the Bible. In Exodus 14, God judges and destroys the Egyptians in the Red Sea as they pursued the Israelites. So we see that there's this uh, place where chaos reigns and judgment is often executed. And we see then that the water is symbolically a dark place associated with judgment and death. And, you know, throw in other things, you know, like when we talk about uh, the new heavens and the new earth, there is no what there? There is no sea. It's not because water's bad. It's not because God doesn't want us to surf. It's because the typological imagery of the sea, of the waters, is judgment. It's bad. It's evil, okay? I hope there's water in heaven. Okay, um, those who are swallowed up into the sea are swallowed up into death. And Jonah says as much in his psalm in chapter 2, verse 4. Jonah says, I have been expelled from your sight. And think about that. What is death but complete and total separation from God, being expelled from God's presence? Here Jonah finds himself, apart from God's presence, in the throes of death. Yet this death judgment of Jonah is not, incomplete. It's not complete. Jonah needs to be entombed, and he hasn't been yet. So Jonah 1.17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now the fish comes along at the Lord's command and entombs him to hold him in the inescapable clutches of death. The sea has become hell for Jonah, and that's the picture we have in Jonah. Chapter 2.6 reads, I descended into the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. Notice the final and eternal language Jonah uses. The earth with its bars was around me forever. Now this was common language when speaking of Sheol, the realm of the dead in Jewish terms. Sheol was a place with gates and bars that would shut you in. For an example, let's look at uh, Job 38.17 which reads, Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Or Isaiah 38.10, I said in the middle of my life I am to enter the gates of Sheol. I am to be deprived of the rest of my years. So thus when we look at Jonah, don't think about the great fish as a lifeboat think about it as a tomb okay think about it as a tomb it's not a sign of god's graciousness for jonah but it's a sign of utter and complete judgment perhaps this fish is the same beast as the sea monster or the beast or the sea dragon that comes out of the sea in scripture the sea monster in amos and isaiah is an agent of judgment in the scriptures so here's amos 9 2 though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command my serpent and it will bite them. But much like Luther when speaking of Satan, Luther spoke of Satan as the devil is God's devil, right? Well, this fish, whatever it is, is God's fish. This sea monster is also to be judged by God. Isaiah 27, in that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Yes, the fish is an agent of judgment, the messenger of Sheol with the charge of devouring Jonah. Jonah thought he would flee from the face of the Lord, but he had no idea how far this journey would take him. He wanted to go where he would not hear God's voice and not do God's bidding, but now he is in the metaphorical equivalent of hell, not where he wants to go. He's been as far removed from God's presence as possible, yet God's presence is still there, however, albeit in his furious unbridled anger. He's no longer in control of his situation. He doesn't have the option of going the opposite direction. He is imprisoned. He's now the prisoner of death. He's hopeless. He's cut off from the land of the living, left to rot in the gastric juices of the great fish's belly, along with the seaweed. Jonah is incapable of effecting any change. In and of himself, he is hopeless. But when we look at scripture, we see that oftentimes judgment and redemption are very nearly associated. But when we look in scripture, usually it's judgment is exercised on one party and redemption is issued to another. Think for a moment about the Egyptians. The people of Israel are delivered, right? They walk through on dry land. The Egyptians are judged, okay? We remember that although the world was judged and destroyed, Noah and his family are saved. Judgment and redemption are awfully closely associated but they're usually on separate parties. Also remember this, God the Spirit works mysteriously in the waters. Genesis 1-2 tells us that although the earth is formless and void, the Spirit of God is moving over the surface of the waters and it brings order and meaning to it. In Exodus 14, when God separates the waters, what does He use? He uses breath or wind or His Spirit to separate the waters and He saves the Israelites. And our own baptism in water is a picture of judgment and the Spirit working, cleansing a new life in us. So here in our text with Jonah, we see that God is doing something mysterious with Jonah in the waters. There's something peculiar about Jonah. Normally in biblical accounts, we find God's judgment being disposed upon one party, the wicked, and God's salvation being given to another party entirely. Typically, there are two parties involved in the receiving of God's wrath and redemption, but here in Jonah, we see he receives both. Yes, Jonah suffers the wrath of God in his death and burial in the depths of the sea, barred in by Sheol, but Jonah remembers the Lord and cries out to the Lord, and God answers him, Jonah 2.10. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. For those of you that were in Sunday school, I really did not plan on all these passages dealing with vomit. Um, (laughs) Curious. I chose this because it deals with the resurrection, and it's about time for that. Well, the Lord commands the fish, and it vomits Jonah up on dry land. Now, as an aside, we need to remember that this is a dramatic prophecy, okay? It prophesies of Jesus' work. It's for this reason that Jonah is broken free from the grips of a metaphorical death in hell, or reality, I don't know. This deliverance of Jonah is not the norm and we should not leave here today saying, well, hey, that pattern we see in Jonah should apply to my unbelieving friend. He can repent and get out of hell. Um, It does not work that way. Hell is an inescapable realm. It is a prophecy pointing towards things to come. As a book of prophecy, foretelling the mighty works of Christ, Jonah is broken free from the mighty grips of death and hell by the almighty power of God. As a resurrected new man, Jonah now, being vomited out of the fish, landing on the shore, what does he do? He's obedient. He obediently takes his message to the Ninevites. Now, it was common Jewish knowledge that the Ninevites were aware of Jonah's death, burial, and resurrection from the sea. And this would certainly account for the widespread repentance of the Ninevites from the smallest to the least of the land. Think about that. By the way, did you know that the Ninevites, uh, they worshipped Dagon, right? I believe it was Dagon. They worshipped a, 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 an idol in the form of a fish. Now imagine you're sunbathing on a nice weekend and having a good time, and the giant fish, which is an image of what you worship, comes up on the shore and vomits up a man. And you use your ancient Near Eastern understanding of anatomy, which is probably about as good as mine, and you do the math. This ain't normal, right? What kind of a creature comes out of the fish, of out of the mouth of the, of the great fish that I associate with my deity? What kind of a creature comes out of that? The kind that has conquered that creature. And when that guy comes out of that fish's mouth and he says 40 days and Nineveh is overthrown, you better bet they all repented, Right? Do you think it's, oh, uh, otherwise, okay, let's absent, you know, the fact that they worshiped a fish, uh, absent the fact that, you know, just imagine some fish barf some dude up, and I don't know, you worship gorillas or something. Um, Are you going to be as likely to hear that and respond to that? No, no. This is Yahweh doing battle with the gods of the land. And he's showing this is the one true God heed his call. And perhaps Jesus' words in Luke seem to affirm this tradition that I referred to, that it was well known amongst the Jews that uh, there was widespread repentance amongst the Ninevites. Jesus' words in Luke seem to affirm this. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, how else would Jonah have become assigned to the Ninevites? Was it his great preaching? No. It's only by means of his miraculous resurrection from a fish that they respond. Any other means, in all likelihood, you go to an enemy people, you tell them to fix their business, you're going to be dead. Okay? But Jonah's message was proved true by his deliverance from death. Well, beloved, this entombing of Jonah in the belly of a great fish, this vomiting up, oh, by the way, and when you're in the belly of a great fish, you die. This entombing, this death, this burial, and this vomiting out, this resurrection of Jonah, as it were, uh, is the sign of Jonah, okay? Okay. It's not his preaching, it's not his sharing of the gospel with foreigners, although that's important. No, the death, burial, and resurrection of the prophet is the sign of Jonah. Now, as Jesus says in Matthew 12, this is the only sign that Jesus will give to a wicked and adulterous generation. The sign of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of Man. Now we see certainly that there's parallels between Jonah's death, burial, and resurrection and Christ's. Certainly we recall our Savior's agonizing death on Calvary, his entombment in Joseph's tomb, and his glorious resurrection and departure from the tomb. This is what all Christians believe and what we confess every time that we recite the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. Indeed, the sign of Jonah, the sign of Jesus, yes, their experience is the same, is the supreme sign, is the supreme event of all history. For it is in the fulfillment of the sign of Jonah that death is destroyed. It's lost its sting for you. In the fulfillment of the sign of Jonah, your sins have been removed from you. As far as the east is from the west, you own them no more. Rather, you own Christ's very righteousness. The righteousness of God becomes yours as you cling to Christ in faith. And as God looks at you, he looks at you as his perfect children, acceptable in his sight. Now, although the similarities between Jonah's experience and Jesus' experience are striking, Although it's apparent that our Lord's death, burial, and resurrection are the clear fulfillment and completion of what Jonah signified, we must look at some significant differences. For Jonah's dramatic prophecy by its very nature is shadowy in comparison. It is the type, right? Christ is the reality. Whereas Jonah is merely a type of Christ, Jesus is the Christ. Whereas Jonah fled from his call in the face of the Lord in disobedience, Our Lord embraces His call in humble obedience to the Father. Jonah confesses himself as guilty of sin and submits to God's judgment. Jesus confesses Himself to be guiltless of sin and bears God's judgment on our behalf. Jonah experiences a tour of hell wherein Jesus experiences all that eternal hell would be for His people. Jonah is delivered from hell while Jesus delivers himself from hell, having drank the full cup of God's wrath on the cross when he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, right? When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is when the Father turns his face, when he has poured the wrath of God out on Jesus because Jesus has become our sin-bearing sacrifice. That's what Jesus does. Jesus delivers himself from hell, being both God and man, able in his eternal being to be able to suffer the penalty for sin. Jonah is resurrected by the power, the ab workout of a fish. Uh, we are resurrected. Jesus is resurrected on his own. Jesus says in John 2, 19, destroy this temple and I will rise it up in three days. Jonah, as a resurrected new man, goes out and he preaches for one day and then regrets his preaching and he's upset about trees and all that. Jesus has no regrets. Jesus, after his resurrection, sends out his apostles, calls them, appoints them, and sends them out to preach the gospel to every creature, and there's no regrets. Truly in Jesus, we find one greater than the prophet Jonah. This Jesus has established the sign of Jonah as the one central event in human history for all to look for as the verification of his message. The scribes and Pharisees continuously sought signs. The Apostle Paul rightly characterized the Jews as those who seek after signs in 1 Corinthians 1.22. But most of the Jews didn't come to faith despite their knowledge of the resurrection. And indeed, they still at that time, wanted a sign that would fit their expectations. I want the glory of David and Solomon multiplied. I want it on my terms, and if my Messiah can't give it to me, I have no interest in that. To people like that, to people who are, have been blinded by the God of this age, Scripture would say, Jesus says, there's no other sign than the sign of Jonah. Well, beloved, how is it with you? Do you expect a sign besides the sign of Jonah? Do you expect something greater than the death, burial, and resurrection of God's own Son for your justification? Is that enough for you? Do you rejoice in this sign and this sign alone? Do you despair of your own efforts to get into heaven? Or do you look at the resurrection and Jesus' claims and think, Wow, that's neat. That's something that should be in a Ripley's Believe It or Not show. I don't know if that carries the same weight for younger folks. Ripley's, believe it or not, is basically a museum of the bizarre, right? Yeah. Wow, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I don't know. How'd that head get shrunk? I don't know. Maybe they put it in a chemical or something. No, it was born that way, right? The, the, sort of these funky, strange uh, phenomenon on earth that lump the resurrection account up with that, and that's often what people do. People want to ignore history, right? In the words of the police song, Canary in the Coal Mine, you pay the analysts to reach the set conclusion. Before you examine that evidence, you already know darn well what you think it means, and you're going to make the evidence fit your presuppositions. Beware of that one, beloved. Beware of that one. But if you rejoice in this sign and this Savior, if you own this Savior and Lord as your own by faith, then not only is the sign of Jonah a reality for Jonah and Jesus who underwent death, burial, and resurrection, but this is your story. This is a present reality for you. This is why Paul in Galatians 2.20 can say, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, Paul says in Romans 6, 4, and 5, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Beloved, as you cling to Christ by faith alone, know that through Christ you've been made righteous. Even the righteousness of God in him. Christian, you too have underwent everything that Jonah endured. You too have underwent everything that Jesus has endured through your union with your faithful Savior. And beloved, just like Jonah, just like Jesus, you've been called to a life of obedience. As a resurrected, newly created son or daughter of God, you're called to walk by faith. You're called to walk as children of the light. It's true. In many ways, some of you might think, well, my Christian walk is a mess, right? Jonah's was kind of a mess, right? He was obedient for a little bit, just long enough to get out, you know, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Um, But then he is bitter. Um, Beloved, seek not to be bitter. Seek to remember, you know, uh, that the kingdom and this is where the earlier application that you know uh, that the gospel has broken the boundaries of ethnic israel needs to be heard okay and the gospel needs to break the boundaries of your friend groups in your families that you need to be faithful in sharing as pastor often says and he stole it from a puritan i'm sure Being that person who tells beggars where to get the bread, right? Being one beggar telling another beggar where to get the bread. Well, we'll go ahead and close it there, okay? As you ponder resurrection this season, know that you participate in resurrection life, and that's foreshadowed by Jonah, it's accomplished by Jesus, and experienced by you as you lay hold to Christ in faith. Let's pray. Father, uh, we give you thanks that you love us, that you have uh, continued to show us that the focal point of Scripture is King Jesus, that he is uh, that center hub that all the spokes tie into and give us meaning. So, Father, today as we close, help us to go out and think about how we can be faithful witnesses to the reality of the accomplishments of Jesus and the reality of a a new kingdom, the reality of heaven, and that we'd be faithful in pointing people there. Lord, we also pray now for the uh, offering. We ask that you would use these funds to make your church grow, that men and women, boys and girls, might know the Lord Jesus Christ and love you and love their neighbor. Hear us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.